Good evening and welcome to um, this uh, lecture in the Gilda Lehman Ideas um, lecture series on American history. I'm Piers Ludlow. Um, I'm acting as chair tonight. Um, and um, it's my pleasure, therefore, to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Professor David Kennedy um, of uh, Stanford University. Um, his list of publications and books is far too long to go through in any detail. Uh, so I won't even attempt to do it tonight, but it's perhaps worth briefly highlighting a number of the high points. In what sort of strikes one as a very varied and sort of intellectually uh, rich array. So it started off in 1970 with a book on birth control in America before moving on to uh, a th the theme of First World War and American society in a book called Over Here. And most recently or perhaps most recently on the CV at least, there may well be others that I haven't found out about, um, a very lauded and garlanded book which was won, amongst other things, the Pulitzer Prize, called Freedom from Fear, the American People in Depression and War. And it's more or less on that sort of period, although quite how it relates to the general theme, that we will be um, hearing the uh, talk tonight. Uh, because your title this evening as is there on the screen behind me, the pivot of the 20th century. Um, and uh, it's looking, if I understand, at the, the crucial emergence of American power in the key uh, period in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, but it's with great pleasure that I look forward to listening to tonight's lecture. So, over to you. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. Uh, my subject is uh, World War II, and in particular, the American role in World War II. Uh, but I'd like to begin with a story that uh, illustrates an important point about the study of history generally, and it's a story that has little or nothing to do with World War II. But according to uh, reliable reports, in a conversation between the Australian Premier, Gough Whitlam, and Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong asked Gough Whitlam the following question. Uh, Mr. Whitlam, he said, how do you think the course of history would have been different if on November 22, 1963, it was not John F. Kennedy who would fall into the assassin's bullet, but instead it was Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian uh, leader who was assassinated on that day? How would the subsequent course of history have been different? Well, as you might imagine, Gough Whitlam had never thought about such a scenario in his life, and as he stammered for a reply, Mao said, well, I'll tell you one thing, Mr. Whitlam, with absolute certainty that we can say about history subsequent to that date, had it been Khrushchev and not Kennedy who was killed, he said, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy would never, uh, pardon me, Aristotle Onassis would never have married Mrs. Khrushchev. Now, I appreciate the fact that some people in this audience understand the humor in that story, but the story, among other things, is an illustration that humor is generationally specific. Because if you don't have a mental picture in your head of Mrs. Khrushchev, not to mention Jacqueline Kennedy, you really don't understand why the story might have any humor value. All right, well, Mao had a point, I think, in a sense, uh, however obliquely he put it, uh, that a lot of historical analysis is either implicitly or explicitly uh, conducted on a what-if scenario basis. Uh, history is not a laboratory bench science, so we can't titrate for different results. Uh, we have to do a lot of thinking exercises in order to come to conclusions about how to weight different causal factors, consequences, and so on and so forth. 
Uh, and it's uh, whether, as I say, either explicitly or implicitly, most historians, I think, operate on a what-if basis. So here's the what-if question that I'd like to uh, uh, pursue with you here this evening. The strongest form of the question is as follows. What if the United States, and to make the argument a little broader, the ally, the Western allies, the United States and the UK, had lost World War II? How would the world that we've all lived in ever since have been different? Now, that's the strongest form of the question. It's probably not the most responsible form of the question. So a slightly amended form of the question is, what if, again, since my major subject is the United States, I'll confine the question to the United States. <clears throat> what if the United States had won World War II, but won it on the basis of a different strategic doctrine with a different configuration of forces, with a different priority to the various theaters of the war, and on a different timetable? How would the world that we've lived in ever since be different? So that's the general question that I'd like to pursue. Now, there's a premise that underlies these remarks, and the premise is that World War II was an enormously transformative event in the life of the entire world, but uh, more particularly, I suppose, in the case of the United States itself. So that's the premise. And the proposition that I want to argue is that the transformative effects of World War II, particularly as regards the United States, did not just happen. They're not simply an incidental effect of engagement in this great conflict, but that the particular results we got uh, in 1945 and thereafter are the effect of the United States, a set of decisions made in the United States to fight a particular war in a particular way on the basis of particular strategic doctrines and on a particular timetable. So how transformative was World War II? Uh, there's an American novelist, uh, Philip Roth, who I think captured some of the uh, basic uh, sense of this in a wonderful novel published about 10 years ago called American Pastoral, in which there's a long passage in which he's attempting to capture for the reader the mood of post-World War II America, essentially the post-World War II generation. And he calls it, he says, this was the greatest moment of collective inebriation in all of American history. And for anyone who's lived through it or has any historical memory of it, that's not a bad way, at least a first-order pass, of capturing the exuberant self-confidence and prosperity of the United States in, in the post-World War II. Uh, Winston Churchill expressed the same sentiment, I think, in a little more uh, uh, ordinary idiom in a speech that he gave uh, on August 16, 1945, the day after the Japanese indication that, it was, that Japan was ready to surrender. And he gave a speech, uh, a line in which leapt off the page at me when I first read it some years ago, not least of all because he used a form of diction uh, that in American English is quite archaic. I suspect actually in most uh, uh, demotic British English as well. But he rendered the United States as a plural noun in this sentence something that has not been common in American speech since the time of our Civil War in the 19th century. But in the course of this speech, it was a speech in which he tried to sum up his understanding of the great conflict that was now concluded in mid-August 1945, his sense of what would be the consequences going forward, downstream in time, what would be the effects of this great struggle that was now concluded. And among the things he said was a single, I think, lapidary sentence that just, as I say, left off the page at me. He said, the United States stand at this moment at the summit of the world. The United States stand at this moment at the summit of the world. That's Winston Churchill, August 16, 1945. 
Now, from an historian's point of view, the remarkable thing about that statement, I don't dispute the accuracy of it at all. I think, as he did in so many things, Churchill caught the essence of the historical moment, and he had the, that part of it exactly right. So I'm not disputing the accuracy of what he said. But from, what an historian, from a historian's perspective, the remarkable thing about that statement and its accuracy at that time is how improbable that particular result would have been from the perspective of just five years earlier, 1940. And if you can take your minds back just briefly to a picture of what the United States looked like in 1940, I think I can give you some sense of how absolutely improbable and unpredictable was the result that Churchill summarized so nicely in 1945. 1940 was the 11th year <clears throat> of the Great Depression <clears throat> in the United States. The United States, along with Germany, were the two countries most deeply affected by the Great Depression of the 30s, and the United States took considerably longer to recover from the Depression than did any other country involved. Uh, one Hoover, Herbert Hoover administration and two Franklin Roosevelt administrations in the 1930s had utterly failed to find an exit from this great economic catastrophe that we call the Great Depression. Take the single most common index of just how big a catastrophe that was. Uh, when Franklin Roosevelt took office in 1933, just a few weeks incidentally after Adolf Hitler took office in Germany, the unemployment rate in the United States was 25%. For the next eight years, through Roosevelt's first two terms in office, the unemployment rate never went below 14%. And in fact, it averaged 17% over the next eight years. So the United States in 1940 was a deeply economically blighted country, a country that really had not found any remedy for this long crisis. In fact, economic theory in the 1930s, uh, a lot of economic theorists generated something called the mature economy thesis, and a body of opinion was forming among some very formidable uh, economists that there would never be an exit, that the only uh, economic growth was an impossibility in mature economies, and the only uh, objective of policy going forward should, should be to reallocate income and resources in such a way that would be more equitable and sustainable at a given fixed level of income and output. So this is, again, just a reminder of where the United States was economically, socially in 1940. And if we look at the international scene and the place of the United States in it, the contrast with what is coming just a few years over the horizon of the future by the end of World War II is, if anything, even more dramatic uh, than with respect to the domestic sea. In the lifetime of virtually every adult, adult living in 1940 in the United States, within their adult memory, the United States had, first of all, refused to join the League of Nations, this new international body that was, after all, the brainchild principally of the American president, Woodrow Wilson, uh, that was in 1919, 1920, refused to join the League. Just shortly thereafter, in 1924, in the notorious National Origins Immigration Act, the United States, for the first time, put a numerical cap uh, on the number of immigrants who could enter the country. All through the 1920s, the United States Treasury essentially insisted on the repayment by Britain and France of the loans the Treasury had extended during the World War I period, a matter that badly disrupted and distorted international capital investment flows through the 1920s and contributed in some measure to the onset of the Depression. The United States in 1930 passed the highest tariff in its history, so-called Smoot-Hawley Tariff. It's become a kind of shorthand for protectionist policies ever since, making it virtually impossible for foreign vendors to sell into the American market. 
And through the 1930s, the United States Congress, on five different occasions, passed formal so-called neutrality acts, which uh, were intended to bind the hands of the executive, the president, in this case Franklin Roosevelt, from getting the country into mischief again, as Woodrow Wilson was thought to have done in 1917. Acts that really made it virtually impossible for the United States to extend loans or to send munitions of war or even other materiel uh, to nations that were in open belligerency. So on every index uh, as of 1940, the United States was not only economically deeply distressed, but also markedly isolationist. Now, if you'd walk down the streets of any American city in the spring of 1940, let's say, and you'd heard a street corner speaker saying something like the following, my fellow Americans, in this year of grace 1940, I'm here to tell you that this economically stricken land of ours will just five years from now by 1945, embark upon a period of economic expansion so robust that by 1960, we will have effectively doubled the size of our middle class as measured by incidence of home ownership. And the United States will become the locomotive of a international expansion in the economy that will be so vigorous on scales so unprecedented that by the end of this 20th century, people will have invented a new word to describe it, and the word is globalization. And what's more, our hypothetical speaker is saying, this isolationist country of ours that repudiated the League of Nations, capped immigration in 1924, uh, insisted on the repayment of all those World War I-era loans, enacted the Smoot-Hawley tariff, and enacted five neutrality statutes just in the last decade of the 1930s, will step forward as the principal funder and founder of a successor organization to the League. It'll be called the United Nations. And moreover, it will invite the headquarters of that organization to be established in the principal American city, New York. And the United States will also take the lead in establishing a whole latticework of other multilateral institutions that will essentially revolutionize the international order. One will be called General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which will eventually morph into something called the World Trade Organization. Uh, one will be called the World Bank. One will be called the International Monetary Fund. And these institutions in their totality will establish the latticework on which the international economy will grow for at least two generations at a rate we've never seen before. Now, any speaker who'd been delivering those remarks in any American city in 1940 would have been instantly and correctly understand, uh, understood to be lunatic, and he would have been dragged off into some institutional setting never to be heard from or seen again. And yet we know, because we have the great advantage of seeing things illuminated by the fabled stern lantern of history, that those predictions, lunatic as they might have seemed in 1940, were spot on accurate about what the position of the United States in the world would be after 1945, what the international economy would look like, and what American society at home domestically, economically, and socially would look like. So how did this happen? How did, in, the, in this crucial period between 1940 and 1945, how did it happen? Or have I just lost my uh, sound? Well, I'm sorry, I've got everything on here. <laughs> Somebody else is going to have to take responsibility. <laughs> Can you hear me anyway? If I... oh. All right, so how did this happen? How did this transformation occur? Now, my students at Stanford, uh, and maybe students here at LSE, sometimes if they're speaking candidly, they'll tell me that the trouble with the study of history is that it's just one damn thing after another. Now, if, if you take nothing else away from this evening's discussion, I hope it will be an understanding that the result we got in 1945 
this transformative effect on the United States, events of World War II. It's not a, a matter of just one damn thing after another. It is attributable to some very specific decisions that were made about how to fight a particular war in a particular kind of way. All right, I've got us down here now to approximately uh, the outbreak of the war, American entry into the war in 1941. So I want to just refer to a crib sheet here because I'm going to quote some important people. I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, but this, I wanted to share with you some reactions to the event that brought the United States into the war, the famous uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in, on December 7th, 1941. And we have a pretty good record of what a lot of how a lot of people uh, responded when they got the news of that event. And the first person whose reaction I'd like to share with you is Adolf Hitler. And we have a, a reliable ear witness account for what he said when he heard the news of the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th, 1941. And yes, he heard the news essentially the same way that everyone else heard the news, over the news wire, because the Japanese had not bothered to inform him in any kind of usable detail about what they were about to do. Another index of how really uh, opportunistic and not very functional uh, was the Japanese-German alliance. But in any case, when he heard the news of Pearl Harbor, Hitler said the following. He said, now it is impossible for us to lose the war because we have an ally who has never been vanquished in 3,000 years. So Hitler's first reflex, his response to this news, was that this clinched a final German victory. Uh, that this was filled with energy and exhilaration uh, upon hearing the news. Now almost, we can imagine, we're allowed to imagine, almost precisely the same moment, Winston Churchill heard the same news in the same way over the news wire. There was no pre-Pearl Harbor collusion between Churchill and Roosevelt about the attack. Let me assure you. And we don't know, at least I don't, uh, haven't found in the historical record an ear witness. Oh, I'm just going to stick with the Diva Voce, thanks. Uh, we don't know, we don't have a witness to what he said, but we do have Churchill's account in his great memoir, uh, in the volume called The Grand Alliance, where he tries to reconstruct for the reader what he was thinking when he heard the news of the Pearl Harbor attack. And it's an, uh, a particularly Baroque, Rococo passage, so I won't inflict the whole thing on you. Uh, but the essential part of it is this. Again, this is Churchill is trying to make us understand what was his mental state when he heard the news of the Pearl Harbor attack. So the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. Churchill flourished. So we had won after all. England would live. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved. And the fact. Now, here we have two leaders, Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, at that moment locked in some kind of absolutely mortal conflict for the control of Europe and indeed the rest of the world, making 180 degree opposite appraisals of what would be the implications of American belligerence. A reminder that even as late as this date, in December of 1941, it was not altogether clear how and when and in what fashion and with what priorities and with what commitment of materiel and manpower and so on, the United States would actually wage war. Now, two other remarks that bear on this same point. The third comes from the pen, the next one comes from the pen of Joachim von Ribbentrop, the uh, German foreign, uh, foreign minister, who approximately 10 days or so after Pearl Harbor, mid-December 1941, after Germany had declared war on the United States on, I believe it was December 11th, uh, von Ribbentrop wrote a lengthy memorandum 
for Adolf Hitler, in which Ribbentrop tried to explain his understanding of how the strategic calculus had now changed, given the fact that the United States was in the war. Again, it's a very lengthy and detailed, quite remarkably, uh, incisively pressing document. But here's the essence. He said, we have just one year to cut Russia off from her military supplies. If we don't succeed, and the munitions potential of the United States joins up with the manpower potential of the Russians, the war will enter a phase in which we shall only be able to win it with difficulty. Now, as it happens, and again, we know how this story comes out, that was a far more prescient uh, and usable strategic insight than Hitler's reflex on the morning of December 7th about the Germany was now unbeatable because of the entrance of Japan into the war against the United States. All right, the last remark here that I'll share with you, and if you'll indulge me, I think it's a defensible reason, I'm going to break the time frame of December 1941 uh, for, as I say, I think a defensible reason, because this last remark came from the pen of Admiral Isoroko Yamamoto, uh, the commander-in-chief of the Imperial Japanese Navy, the architect of the Pearl Harbor attack, and in fact the architect of the six months later attack on Midway. Uh, and Yamamoto wrote in September of 1940, so this is some 15 or 16 months before the attack on Pearl Harbor, at a time when the U.S.-Japanese relationship was beginning to go seriously sour. Yamamoto wrote a strategic appraisal for his prime minister, Fumimoro Kanoya, the last civilian prime minister of Japan before the Tojo government comes to power, in which Yamamoto tried to describe, this is what Trump did for Hitler, in December of 1941. Here's Yamamoto in September of 1940 trying to sketch out for his civilian prime minister what the strategic situation looks like. And he says the following. If I am told to fight, regardless of the consequences, I shall run wild for the first six months or a year. Interestingly, he uses almost the exact same time frame that Ribbentrop does in 1941. But, he said, I have utterly no confidence for the second or third year. I hope, therefore, Mr. Prime Minister, that you will endeavor to avoid a Japanese-American war. Now, again, this is, to me, a remarkable historical document. It comes from the pen of the man who's charged with the mission of planning the event that initiates the Japanese-American war, begging his own government uh, a little over a year earlier not to follow this path, not to take this course of action. Why? Because Yamamoto and Ribbentrop knew the first rule of warfare as laid down thousands of years earlier by Sun Tzu, know your enemy. And what they knew, what Ribbentrop and Yamamoto knew, was that if the United States were brought into the war by whatever means, once it ended, it could bring to bear such a weight of commodities, goods, and munitions, and technology that it would crush any adversary or combination of adversaries. That if this sleeping behemoth of, a, of an economy that had been so stricken through the 1930s, were fully galvanized and energized into action, it would be such a formidable opponent that after the initial advantage of being the first striker in 1941 had passed after six months or a year, the outcome would be inevitable, which in fact is the way the war plays out. Now, how did this come about? Uh, again, I'm going to tell you a little fable. I'm going to give it a title. I'm going to call it A Tale of Three Cities. Uh, and I uh, tell a little story about what happened in three cities that I'll name in just a moment. And if we understand what happened in these three cities, 
uh, it gives us, I think, a fairly coherent picture of how the United States chose to wage World War II and why Churchill was accurate in 1945 when he said the United States stand at this moment, at the side of the world. Okay? All right. The three cities are Rouen in France, Washington, D.C., and city number three is a city that actually had its name changed uh, three times over the course of the 20th century. It opened the 20th century known as Tsaritsyn. Uh, we know it today as uh, Volgograd, but at the time our story unfolds, it was known as Stalin. And our story unfolds in a six-month period between August of 1942 and February of 1943. In that six-month period, events took place in these three cities, Rouen, Washington, D.C., Stalingrad. And if we understand them, then we understand, I think, the pattern of how the United States chose and succeeded in fighting its own particular kind of war. And I would say, in fact, the United States is about the only country that engaged in World War II that was allowed the privilege of fighting the kind of war it preferred to fight. Virtually all other belligerents were forced by the unfolding of events to force it to wage a different kind of war from the one they preferred and had anticipated. All right, chapter one, Rouen, France, August 17, 1942. Not a date that's emblazoned in our historical memory like Pearl Harbor or November 22nd, 1963 or 9-11-2001, but an important date nonetheless. August 17, 1942, a squadron of exactly one dozen American U.S. Army Air Force B-17 bombers took off from a base in the south of England, escorted by a swarm of Spitfire fighters, transited the English Channel, and delivered a bomb load on a railroad switching yard in Rouen. Uh, switching yard is on the banks of the river. It was several hundred yards from the famous cathedral whose facade had been painted so many times over the years and maybe a kilometer or two away from the site where the British had burned Joan of Arc at the stake some centuries earlier. Uh, all the planes returned to base. There was no damage to the aircraft, no loss of crew. All the ordnance was dumped on its uh, appointed target. So by the usual standards of these things in World War II, this was a very successful mission. But that's not why it's important. It's important because on that date, August 17, 1942, we see the implementation of a decision that had been made essentially about a decade earlier, in the early 1930s, when the United States decided to take advantage of a theory, a new theory of warfare, mostly developed by an Italian writer by the name of Giulio Duet, a book published in the early 1920s called The Command of the Air, a book that is to aerial warfare what uh, Admiral Mahan's book was to naval warfare a generation or so earlier. And the United States uh, Senior Military Command in the early 1930s decided that in the event of a future war, God forbid, they would put, make their principal bet, they would make their principal investment of resources in a strategic air arm. And strategic bombing was a revolutionary concept in the history of war because its central premise was that the priority target is not the enemy's armed forces in the field. It is his civilian heartland. And if you could cripple his infrastructure, his economic productive capacity sufficiently by long deep penetration bombing raids, 
with reusable weapons platforms called strategic bombs. If you could put his economy in such bad shape that he couldn't sustain his army in the field, and simultaneously, Duet argued, these raids, such long-range deep penetration raids would also have the effect of demoralizing and terrorizing the enemy's civilian population so that they would constitute a political force that would sue for peace. The United States Army adopted this doctrine in the early 1930s, uh, put out a design competition for a weapons platform that would meet the purpose. The Boeing Aircraft Company won the design competition and built the first experimental B-17 bomber that flew for the first time in 1935. And by the time the war came along, uh, the United States had built, or was in the process of building, a bomber fleet sufficient to implement this strategic doctrine and to make this the center of the entire American war effort. Notice the date, August 17, 1942. Britain had been bombing Germany uh, for a couple of years or more by this time, but this is the first independent American action, uh, aerial uh, strategic bombing raid uh, of the war. It's August of 1942. D-Day, the great cross-channel amphibious invasion, is nearly two years away. Uh, the, so the, the principal front from which the United States and Britain too, for, to a large extent, engaged the Nazi adversary for most of the duration of the war was not on the ground, but from the air. And this was a deliberate decision that had been made in the case of the United States, and to a large extent in the case of Britain as well, a decade or so earlier. You don't just instantly summon into being these large bomber fleets. There's all kinds of design issues, and manufacturer issues, and engineering issues that takes take months or years to resolve. Now, in a delicious, I think, turn of the historical wheel, it turns out that the lead pilot on that August 17, 1942 raid, uh, the lead American pilot, uh, was a man by the name of Paul Tibbetts. I don't know if the name means anything to people in this room. Paul Tibbetts just died in the last few months, actually. Uh, but Paul Tibbetts is also the pilot of the Enola Gay, the B-29 airplane, which is the successor of technology to the B-17, which dropped history's first atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. So in the arc of this one individual's military career in World War II, he begins the strategic bombing attack on Nazi-occupied Europe in 1942, and the same individual, as it happens, interestingly enough, ends the war effectively by leading this highly effective, in military terms, strategic bombing attack against uh, Japan in the summer of 1945. So Paul Tibbetts, in a way, summarizes the point I'm trying to make, which is the centrality of the strategic bombing doctrine to overall American strategy and war fighting doctrine. Okay? All right, chapter two, uh, Washington, D.C., just a few weeks later, October 6th, 1942, a much less dramatic event. It takes place in the office of a war administrator by the name of Donald Nelson. Donald Nelson was retailer by occupation and lifetime career. He's been the president of Sears Roebuck and Company, a major American retail house uh, in peacetime. He was brought on board in, in the war to run something called the War Production Board, whose job it was to shift the American economy from a civilian to a military footing and to rechannel resources from the civilian to the military economy and provide the, the material goods that were needed to outfit the American military and indeed, through the Lend-Lease Program, substantial parts of the British and the Soviet. As 1942 had gone on, and this frantic, pell-mell scramble to shift the economy over to a military footing, to begin producing the 
enormous quantities of goods that were needed to support the military at the level of vision. Nelson became increasingly worried that the targets that had been set for him, they're actually set in a formal document called the uh, Victory Program, capital V, capital P, a document drafted in 1941. He came to the conclusion that the targets that were set for him and the timetable that was set to reach them were not feasible. And this became known in war planning circles, military and civilian alike, became known as the feasibility dispute over the course of 1942. Something that's largely lost to history, but in fact is central to any understanding of how the United States fought the war. Nelson worried, among other things, that if this mobilization program went on in the fashion that he'd been charged to conduct it, that the civilian economy would begin to feel the pinch in a very, very real way. And this isolationist public out there that had been so reluctant to engage in the conflict in the first place until as late as December 1941 might lose its stomach for continuing the war. So uh, Nelson decided that he, he, he had to change the rate at which the mobilization program was going forward and change its scale so as not to impinge too heavily on the civilian economy and civilian standards of life. So he made the case increasingly over the spring and summer of 1942. He finally had a showdown meeting in his office uh, on October 6, 1942, which high-level political figures were there. The Vice President, uh, Henry Wallace, represented Franklin Roosevelt in the White House. And they had this face-off with the military procurement and strategic people. And Nelson and Henry uh, Wallace won the argument. And they changed the whole mobilization schedule. Two very concrete conclusions follow. The first was that the original target date for the event that we know as D-Day had been set in the original Victory Program document as July 1st, 1943. Now, we all know it happens on June 6, 1944. So in effect, as a result of these decisions, D-Day is postponed by a year, the opening of a Western or Second Front, something that the Soviets were begging for every occasion. It was postponed essentially for a year. The second decision that flowed from this October 6, 1942 meeting was that the decision was formally taken to scrap the target of mobilizing 215 ground divisions and instead to mobilize only 90 divisions. Now this left 125 divisions worth of manpower that had originally been envisioned as passing into the armed forces and serving uniform instead at home on the production. Now the military, who were very uncomfortable with this conclusion, called this particular part of the consequence of the October 6th meeting the 90 division gamble. Now, why was it a gamble in their eyes? The answer to that question takes us to chapter three in our story, Stalingrad, February 1942. The victory program that it had envisioned D-Day as of July 1st, 1943, and 215 division U.S. Armed Force had been built on the premise that the Soviet Union, like every other adversary that the Blitzkrieg war tactics of the Germans had faced, would go down to military defeat. Or alternatively, that the Soviets would be so badly punished uh, by the German invasion that though they might still maintain some nominal military resistance, they would seek a political exit from the war. They would seek a negotiated settlement of some kind. As indeed there was precedent for this, as the original Bolshevik government had been done in 1918, the famous Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, they had taken Russia at that time out of the war and unleashed all the German, available German forces for one last 
Bush in the West in the spring of 1918. So there was ample precedent for this kind of thing, and the fear was hardly ungrounded that the Soviets might not remain in the war. The Soviet victory at Stalingrad, in, which was concluded finally in early in February of 1943, uh, gave pretty strong and reliable proof that the Soviets would not be militarily defeated. And their uh, ability shortly thereafter, particularly at the great the tank battle in Kursk, to go on the offensive, to pass from the strategic defensive to the strategic offensive, and begin the process of pushing the Wehrmacht out of Russia, back through the Ukraine, into Poland, Germany, ending the war finally in spring of 1945. But that was now a reasonable bet. So in effect, the Soviet victory at Stalingrad ratified the viability of these earlier American decisions to fight primarily from the air and not on the ground, to delay D-Day until the last feasible moment, and to field a far smaller ground force than had been originally now, Joseph Stalin had his own way of summarizing this result. He said, he said this repeatedly, both to Churchill and Roosevelt, correspondents and to their faces when he met them uh, at Tehran in particular. Uh, he said, it appears that the Americans have chosen to fight this war with American money and American machines and with Russian men. Now, that was a cynical way to put it, but it was a pretty accurate way to put it. And there we have, in a nutshell, in that cynical but accurate uh, formulation, uh, we have essentially the uh, essence of the American warfighting doctrine. Now, there are some consequences to this that bring us back to our question of the shape of the post-war world. And I'll just touch on uh, briefly, and then I'd be pleased to have some comment questions. Uh, one of the consequences has to do with the thing that Donald Nelson, if you'll remember, was trying to preserve and uh, even enhance in wartime, which is the American civilian economy. The United States in World War II is the only belligerent, the only belligerent that fought in World War II that managed to fight the war while simultaneously raising its civilian standard of living. Indeed, that's a pretty singular achievement in the entire history of warfare, not just in the case of the United States in World War II. There are very few societies of which we have any historical knowledge and managed to fight years-long protracted contests of attrition and simultaneously to grow their civilian or non-military sector of their economy. In both the United Kingdom and in the Soviet Union, uh, our best estimates are that the civilian economies in both of those societies, two partners of the United States, the so-called Grand Alliance, that in both the Soviet and the British case, the civilian economy shrank something on the order of 30% people had roughly one-third less of the usual staples of civilian uh, marketplaces, civilian consumption, uh, fuel, food, clothing, shelter, and so on. Deep suffering in both the British and uh, Soviet societies as a result of their engagement with the world. In the United States and the United States alone, that is decidedly not the case. The American civilian economy, the civilian sector, of the U.S. economy grew by about 15% in World War II. There is no other society that engaged in that conflict that can make any even remotely similar claim. Now, there's a, there's a story that illustrates this that I'm not a fan of. Uh, there used to be an American uh, syndicated columnist whose name was Harry Gold, I believe, and he, he published his own little itty-bitty newspaper, but it had a, quite of a bit of a readership. It was called the Carolina Israelite. 
And he had a regular column in this paper uh, called Only in America. And it was a kind of light and humorous uh, set of stories over many years about events that he thought were somehow characteristically American, could have happened no place else. Sometimes when I think of this, I'm reminded of a famous comment by the American baseball player Yogi Berra. I don't know if Yogi Berra's fame has made it all the way across the Atlantic, but Yogi Berra is, is reputedly the author of all kinds of, kind of wacko aphorisms about various things. Yogi Berra was once told that a Jew by the name of Briscoe had been elected the mayor of Dublin, Ireland. And Yogi Berra's response, we're told, was, no kidding, think of that, a Jew, the mayor of Dublin, Ireland, only in America. <laughs> well, Yogi Bear aside, uh, this, I did not get this story from Harry Gold, actually, um, but it's a, it's a story that I think he would have liked or appreciated. And it has to do with Macy's department store chat. Uh, again, I'm not sure what the British analog to Macy's would be, maybe Marks and Spencer or something like that. Macy's at that time, and even down to this day, is one of the very biggest retail department store chains in the United States. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's everything. And it was at that time, far and away, the biggest uh, retailer of that sort. So the story goes that in late, uh, in the, in the late 1944, the marketing geniuses at Macy's department store decided that they, they were casting around for a date on which they could organize a chain-wide sale. And this is the first and more humorous but really less consequential part of the story. The date they chose was December 7th. 1944, the third anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, when they had a big 10, 15, whatever it was, discount sale, percent discount sale, and all their stuff. It would be as if today some retailer in the United States chose 9-11 as the date on which to have a celebratory chain-wide sale. It would be kind of an unthinkable matter today. But these characters in 1944, for whatever reasons, decided December 7, 1944, was the date in which they were going to organize this sale. Now think of the moment. December 7th, 1944, third anniversary of Pearl Harbor, about a week or two before the Battle of the Bulge, around the time of the Battle of the Philippine Sea and the invasion of the Philippine Islands. In other words, it's the moment when American forces, Allied forces generally, British forces as well, were engaged at the maximum in both the European and the Pacific theaters. On this day, right in that season, uh, Macy's had the sale, and as it turned out, at the end of the day, on that day, Macy's had racked up the highest dollar volume of sales of any day in its history up to that time. Now, there is no other country that engaged in World War II where any event like that, remotely like that, could have happened. And we see here in wartime the, the beginnings of the, the fueling of these great engines, of particularly of consumer spending and economic growth that propelled the United States into this post-war period of prosperity that it has sustained essentially without any really uh, noticeable uh, downticks other than a few months duration uh, for two full generations or more. So this is one consequence uh, for the United States of fighting this particular war in this way and on this timetable is that its civilian economy was exempted from the kinds of taxes and stresses and so on that were put on most other economies and prepared the way for the United States not only to prosper at home, but to lead world economic growth uh, for a long time thereafter. All right, finally, again, I'm going to resort to my crib sheet here because uh, I'm going to do some numbers, and I don't want to get the numbers wrong. Why does this thing go off when I'm, oh, because it picks up the, okay. 
This is another uh, consequence of the warfighting doctrine uh, that uh, the United States uh, followed in World War II. Uh, perhaps I should apologize for ending on such a macabre note, but uh, this is an important matter, I think, and it's a direct consequence of the way the United States engaged in the war. It has to do with the number of casualties in various countries that were engaged. All right, and the United, all these estimates incidentally come from a, a reliable source, but there is some dispute about the range of numbers in different places. The source I've used is the Oxford Companion to World War II, which tells us that in the UK, here, Britain, there were approximately 350,000 dead in the war, of which about, of that number, 350,000, about 100,000 were civilians. China, a country we sometimes forget, uh, have been engaged in this conflict since at least 1937. The conflict has evolved into World War II, by some accounts even since 1931. But in China, we think uh, that 10 million people died in the course of the conflict, of whom about 6 million were civilians. Yugoslavia, by American standards, relatively small country, 2 million dead in the war, of whom about 1.5 million were civilians. Poland, again, a relatively small country by American standards, 8 million dead, of whom about 6 million were civilians. Japan, 3 million dead, uh, of whom about 1 million were civilians. And most Japanese civilians, incidentally, who were killed in the war were not killed in the two atomic attacks, but in the much more lethal firebombing raids that began in November of 1944 and continued, in fact, into mid-August 1945. American forces were dropping firebombs even after August 6th, after the first atomic bomb was dropped. But about a million Japanese civilians dead out of a total uh, Japanese death toll of about three million. Germany, six and a half million dead, uh, of whom one million were civilians. And again, in the case of the German civilians, the great majority of those German civilian dead were the victims of the combined Anglo-American bomber offensive. Soviet Union. 24 million dead, of whom 16 million were civilians. Uh, I can tell this is a sophisticated and knowledgeable audience because to this day, these numbers are not mysterious. They've long been known, at least within a certain range. And most American audiences to this day gasp when they hear the Soviet numbers. That's, it's a sign of some kind of American historical and political provincialism uh, that the, the American cultural concept of the war does not understand uh, how America's war was unlike everybody else's, particularly the Soviet Union's. In any case, 24 million dead in the Soviet Union, of whom 16 million were civilians. And then the United States. 405,399 military dead. The official Defense Department final summary figure. 405,399. That's in both theaters, Pacific and European, in all branches of service, Army, Army Air Corps, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and Merchant Marine, eventually considered a military arm in the course of the war, sum it all together, and you get 405,399 military dead. Not a trivial number, but again, you put it in the scales, particularly relative to population with other societies, and you begin to form a picture of the nature of America's relationship with this country. 59, for every single American who died in World War II, 59 Soviets. The Soviet death toll is 59 times greater than the American. And if we look at the civilian side of the ledger, 
how many American civilians in the 48 continental states, the 48 states that in that moment in history had a star on the flag. So it excludes Alaska and Hawaii. If you included them, it would not make a material difference in what I'm about to say. But in the 48 continental states, the number of civilians whose deaths in World War II are attributable to enemy action was exactly six people. Six. Single-digit and as it happens, they all died together the same instant in, on the slopes of a mountain called Gearhart Mountain outside a very tiny little town called Bly, Oregon. Oregon's on the west coast. Bly's near Klamath Falls. That helps you locate it in your middle map. Uh, the, the, the dead were a woman by the name of Elsie Mitchell and five school children who were with her ages about 10 to 14. Mrs. Mitchell was the wife, she was 25 years old, she was the wife of a pastor at a local church in the town of Bly. His name was Archie Mitchell. And the Reverend Mitchell and his wife, Elsie, were taking the children on a Sunday school picnic out. And they went up on the slopes of uh, Gerhardt Mountain, which is not really a mountain, it's more of a big ridge. Uh, and they, the Reverend Mitchell dropped the, Mrs. Mitchell and the children off from the vehicle they were in, and he went off to park the car someplace, and he heard a loud explosion. And he ran down to where he heard the explosion, and he found his wife and all five of these children already dead. And what had happened to them was that they'd found in the underbrush a strange-looking object, and they apparently pulled at it to get it out and have a better look. And it exploded and killed them all. And what they found was a Japanese fireball. Now, the Japanese, as it turns out, launched about 10,000 of these things, beginning in late 1944 and into the spring of 19. This event happened in Bly, Oregon on May 5th, 1945. Uh, these balloons were made out of mulberry paper. Uh, they, once they were inflated, they had about a 30-foot diameter. Uh, the balloons, the, the panels that made up the balloon were assembled usually on the floors of uh, school gymnasiums uh, in uh, Japan, usually by school children who used a potato flour paste to actually attach the panels to one another. They were then brought to a place called 99 League Beach near uh, Tokyo. They were inflated with hydrogen, and a little bit of a gondola was slung under them. And the gondola contained uh, about a three-pound incendiary bomb, uh, or set of bombs, uh, and one anti-personnel device, a shrapnel. They had no internal means of propulsion. They were simply lofted into the jet stream, which uh, Japanese meteorologists had discovered before anybody else knew it was there. Uh, and the jet stream, in the northern hemisphere at least, it flows from west to east. And so it was predictable that once these things were in the jet stream, they would transit the Pacific Ocean, and there was a little bit of a, a barometer device uh, that kept the balloons within a certain vertical envelope. If they got too low, uh, sand ballast was dropped. If they got too high, some hydrogen was released. And then they were timed. The timer was programmed so that when they got over North America, these things would fall to Earth, and they would the firebombs would go off, and they would set off vast forest fires all over the American West. This was Japan's strategic bombing campaign against the United States. It was technologically absolutely primitive. Uh, but the, the thought was, if these things worked, they would ignite forest fires all the way from Western Canada to Mexico, particularly in the Western American states, which are largely thickly forested, uh, and that the Americans would then be forced to redirect manpower and resources and so on to fight these fires and slow down their pace of advance toward the Japanese home islands. They have fewer resources with which to 
wage warfare out there in the Pacific. Now, I can't, I'll just conclude by taking a little bit of poetic license because I can't prove that this actually happened, but I think it's entirely plausible. Uh, it's certainly not a wild speculation. To me, it's plausible to imagine, and it's a way to kind of keep the important point about this in mind, that uh, one night, or one evening, as these enormous B-29 bomber streams were leaving their bases in the Mariana Islands and flying these nightly firebombing raids against Japanese cities, 60-some-odd Japanese cities were essentially totally destroyed uh, in these firebombings. The raids were scientifically worked out, a mixture of high-explosive and incendiary bombs uh, in, in, in compounds or in, in alloys that, that were thought to be, uh, the objective was to create firestorms. In fact, the United States Air Forces succeeded in only creating one firestorm in Tokyo on the night of March 9th, 10th, 1945, which killed 100,000 Japanese civilians on the ground in a single night. More than died at Nagasaki, and just a little short of the number that died in Hiroshima. So imagine one evening, one of these, there were five and 600 plane bomber streams flying their mission toward Japan. And somebody had looked out a plexiglass dome, let's say the Bombardier or one of the turret gunners, and saw one of these Japanese balloons going in the other direction. Silent, mute, noiseless, no internal means of propulsion. And might have wondered what that thing was. Well, we know what it was. It was a firebomb headed for the forests of North America. It's rather uh, abortive attempt to wage strategic bombing warfare against the United States. Now, in that image, it seems to me, you have realized Admiral Yamamoto's nightmare. The thing he warned about as early as 1940. Because here are these B-29 bombers, a successor to the original B-17, a more technologically advanced bomb with a 4,500-mile combat radius, power, powered by four 1,800-horsepower light engines with a, a crude computer device on board that coordinated the 1150-caliber machine guns that were the self-defending apparatus of the plane, delivering scientifically designed bomb loads on Japanese cities and eventually deli delivering history's most technologically advanced weapon ever, the Hiroshima bomb, Nola Gay and Mr. Paul Tibbetts on August 6, 1945. The contrast between the material, technological, scientific resources that the United States could bring to bear by that point, in, in contrast with the, the pathetic Japanese attempt to launch a strategic bombing campaign against the United States, is again a kind of summary statement of the kinds of advantages that the United States brought to bear in the war that it consciously sought to maximize, to leverage its material, scientific, technological, engineering prowess and advantages over any adversary. And that, again, it's why Churchill had it right when he said in 1945, the United States stood at the summit of the world. Uh, I'll stop there. I'd be happy to take uh, comments or questions. Now, do you, are you, gonna, oh, you have a microphone up there? Yes, there's a, there's a roving mic. Can I, can I start proceedings off by asking a first question myself? Uh, namely, was, so if, as you've written about the, 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 the American domestic front of the wars, was Nelson right in his anxieties about what America would be able to bear in terms of mobilization 
and sort of sacrifice in, in, in the name in the name of victory, or was this? Well, he 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 certainly was the beneficiary of the best economic advice that he could get, particularly from a person I have, Simon Kuznets, who was a founder of the National Bureau of Economic Research. I think Kuznets eventually won the Nobel Prize in Economics, but I'm not sure of that. But Kuznets, in the American context at least, is the economist who's probably most famous for insisting on reliable empirical data as the foundation for any kind of economic theorizing or policy. And it was Kuznets who was on uh, the War Production Board staff at that time, or at least advisory to the staff, who uh, developed the argument that this was unfeasible to proceed at the rate that the Victory Program had. So we didn't, we didn't, again, it's not a laboratory science. We can't rerun the film and take this or that out. But certainly, Nelson had, I would say, about the very best economic advice that he could get when he made that decision. OK. Um, yes, Tom, Tom Hackett, here. Thanks. Thanks very much. I a very interesting talk dealing with something that's obviously very central and often gets left off in some histories that should probably touch on it more. To what degree do you think that the U.S.'s um, different economic experience in World War II is a result of location, both because it means there's massive inflows of credit, which deal with the huge problem America had in the 30s, which was lack of credit, and helps outweigh the genuine costs of World War II. And secondly, in it, you know, if you aren't being bombed, it obviously makes a difference to your, civilian, to your economic output. And how does it compare with the Canadian experience? which could perhaps say something about it. Well, I, I, I'm going to plead in confidence to say anything cogent about the Canadian experience. I, I'd be guessing, so I just don't know that much about it. But you've put your finger on something that I did not mention, which also can go, which is the simple fact of geography, which also can go a long way toward explaining the same result. Geography doesn't have much to do with the timing factor, the delay of D-Day, for example. Uh, but it certainly is a factor that rendered the United States effectively exempt from the kind of disruption that bombing or even the threat of invasion uh, made a reality for almost every other uh, society engaged in the war. Um, and it, it's no accident, therefore, it's, it's largely for reasons of geography, although not exclusively, uh, that the atomic bomb project, which uh, in some ways was more advanced in the UK than it was in the US as of 1941 or so, is moved lock, stock, and barrel, essentially to the United States. And in fact, because it's safe from, thought to be safe from the kind of disruption, bombardment, or what have you, uh, that would have been the case had it gone on in the UK. Uh, let me just add to that since I mentioned it. Um, <coughs> other times when I've discussed this subject and used a little parable that I uh, shared with you, the so-called tale of three cities, uh, I've invited people to guess what are the three cities. Of course, no one can guess because they're a product of my uh, thinking about the matter. And I just uh, chose those city, cities as ways of illustrating certain points. But at one point, somebody from the audience guessed, yeah, the three cities are Hanford, Washington, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Los Alamos, New Mexico, which are the three principal production sites for the atomic bomb. Right? Hanford was the plutonium site, uh, Oak Ridge the rich uranium site, and Los Alamos the kind of scientific and engineering site. Now, that's actually a pretty good uh, guess. And, and I, I, in a way, although it would, I think, be a little less sharp, but in a way, I think I could make essentially the same argument using those three cities, Hanford, Oak Ridge, and Los Alamos, for the following reason. 
The basic science of building an atomic weapon was widely understood throughout the, the, the world's physicists and scientific community, particularly by 1939 or so. And in fact, it's the, the, the famous letter that goes to Franklin Roosevelt over Albert Einstein's signature in August of 1939 uh, is because Einstein, well, actually it wasn't so much Einstein, it was Edward Teller and uh, two other physicists whose names I'm forgetting for the moment, went, who were unknown young men, they went to Einstein and got him to sign the letter they drafted so that it would get somebody's attention. But what they had noticed was the Germans had embargoed export of uranium ore from the Joachimsthal area of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and this was a sign that they, they were on their way to building an atomic weapon. Uh, it, was, it was correct. Okay. All right. So every, every major belligerent had an atomic project. The Germans had one. They were well advanced with it in 19, by 1940, 41. Britain had one. The Soviets had a kind of a lame one, but they had one. Japan had one. All right. Um, when Germany finally realizes that its Soviet, the invasion of the Soviet Union is not going to work out, and the Blitzkrieg tactics don't work in this case, and they have to settle down for a much deeper mobilization of their resources and for a protracted war of attrition. Uh, one of the first things that Hitler does is he tells the new Minister of Munitions, Albert Speer, to conduct an inventory of the German economy and get it ready for a several years long duration conflict of the sort that Germany had hoped to avoid. Okay? One of the first things that Speer does is he goes to Werner von Heisenberg and the German physicist, paraphrasing here, but essentially he asked them, uh, are you going to have a bomb uh, ready for us within a reasonable length of time? And we can actually use it in this country. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but they essentially say, uh, yes, we can have a bomb within a couple of years, maybe, if you give us the following resources, and that like 40% of the electrical generating capacity in the Reich, all the technological and engineering personnel uh, that we can lay our hands on, and all the copper we can mine for the next two years and so on and so forth to make the magnets for the hexafluoride extraction and so on and so forth. And Speer, in essence, tells them, we cannot afford this. That our economy is simply not big and deep and robust enough to be able to gamble on a bomb project and wage conventional war at the same time. It's exactly what it tells them. We will be unable to wage conventional war if we divert this many resources to bomb. Now, the United States had no such constraint. So again, the United States is unique in this regard. It's, it, it wasn't unique knowledge that the American scientists, physicists, and technicians had, but they had unique resources, financial resources, physical resources, and so on, and a deep manpower pool of technicians and scientists and engineers who could make this happen. So in the last analysis, the United States was the only country that could plausibly bring an atomic project to conclusion in time to be useful in World War II. So it's another way of actually getting at the same point unique position of the United States respective to the conflict. Second question over there. Yeah. I just wanted to follow up your question. Um, you answered Dr. Norman's question in terms of economics. How about in terms of politics? Oh, well, I, again, Nelson's principal insight and his principal motivation for uh, taking Kuznets's advice seriously was, I think, uh, largely political, maybe even principally political. That he, he feared that if the, the mobilization plan that he'd been charged with implementing really went much further along the track, that the civilian economy would begin to contract. And he feared a uh, rejuvenating, reinvigorating the 
kind of isolation of sentiment that have been quite pronounced down through into 1941. Uh, we, again, the United States has been more or less so consistently internationalist, maybe even too robustly internationalist in some moments since 1945. It's easy for us to lose uh, track or memory of just how this isolation of shadow hung over the World War II and early Cold War generation of policymakers. So he was very much afraid. Again, how do we know? We, we can't we can't fully dope out the counterfactual, but it was certainly not an implausible presumption. I think that's about the best answer. We can give. I, mean, I, I suppose I could I could flesh out the answer a bit and uh, say that a few years later, after 1945 in the early Cold War, it is certainly uh, a, a matter that is very much on the minds of people like Dean Atchison and Harry Truman that the public will not buy. Uh, a long-term mobilization, robust defense, national security policy, because it is still so residually and vestigially uh, isolationist. So Atchison, in his memoirs, uh, modestly entitled President of the Creation, uh, <laughs> says at some point in there, I mean, it's a really uh, astoundingly candid remark. At some point, he said, we needed to make our case clearer than truth. <laughs> Uh, which is a description of a lot of the political rhetoric in the United States in the early Cold War period, rather markedly exaggerating uh, the Soviet threat and the ideological conflict and so on and so forth, because I think people like Truman and Atchison feared if they didn't do this, they would have no foreign policy at all. The public simply wouldn't get behind it. So well after Donald Nelson's day, this is still a preoccupation for a lot of American policy. Makers. I guess the question was into that. One of the mics get back. Uh, hi, I'm going to be slightly greedy and ask two questions. Um, first of all, uh, given the Japanese awareness of the strategic implications of Pearl Harbor, what on earth do you think motivated them to go ahead and do it in the first place? And um, secondly, noting your enthusiasm for what-if questions, what do you think... I'm sorry, my enthusiasm for... For what-if questions. What do you think the U.S. would have done had Pearl Harbor not happened, given, as you say, World War II presented such a prime opportunity for them to implement a predetermined strategic um, idea? Okay. Those are two very uh, substantial questions, so I'll <laughs> see if I can do justice to them. Um, the, actually, the person who I think has written most cogently and clearly about this is the British military historian John Key, uh, and he, from whom I've taken tuition on this point, and he says something to the effect that the, the, the slim filament, the tiny, thin filament of hope on which, from which Japanese policy depended, was that the Americans would be so demoralized by this big punch that they would deliver at Pearl Harbor that they would lose their stomach for the Pacific War uh, and make some kind of a settlement with the Japanese uh, and turn their attention to the Atlantic or European theater. Now, as a matter of fact, this was not an altogether crazy uh, assumption or, or premise. Uh, I read you that passage from Churchill's memoir where he said, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful when he heard from the Pearl Harbor event. In some larger historical sense, that's a permissibly accurate statement, but in a more tight empirical sense of what he actually did in the days after Pearl Harbor, it's very misleading because about the first thing he did was he picked up the phone and he told the king he was going to Washington, D.C. immediately by air 
in order to make sure that the Americans still were going to honor the so-called ABC-1 agreements that had been struck with the British earlier in 1941 to make the principal emphasis the European theater. And it was it, Churchill feared that the Americans would be so roused by this uh, attack on Pearl Harbor that they would go hounding off after the Japanese in a war of vengeance, and they would renege on their commitment to make their principal uh, effort in the European theater. Well, so he comes to Washington, D.C., lives in the White House for two weeks in December 1941, impresses everybody with the whole panoply of his personality and skills and drinking habits and so on, <laughs> and finds almost instantly, he's very reassured, that in fact the Americans are not uh, going to change their overall strategic uh, plan, uh, that they will still make the principal effort in the European theater. Okay. <clears throat> so that's, that's the Japanese side. Now, uh, help me remind me a little bit your second question. Ah, okay, yeah. Well, had it not happened, it possibly might not have happened for the reason that the it was not altogether inconceivable that the Americans might find a political settlement that they would find palatable with the Japanese. As late as the end of November 1941, Roosevelt appears, that's the record we can see, appears to be seriously considering a proposal to negotiate a deal with the Japanese to reopen trade and to take down the temperature of the whole Pacific area and avoid the conflict. So if there had been no uh, attack on Pearl Harbor uh, and no Japanese war, at least for the time being, what would have been the implications? Well, the United States then would have been free to commit virtually all of its resources to the European theater, in which case, it's, again, we're, we're now uh, concatenating these what-ifs, and we're getting out to some very dangerous territory here. But it's at least, I think, uh, legitimate to imagine that in that case, uh, the original victory program timetable would have held, not necessarily the 215 division part, but the July 1st or shortly thereafter 1943 date for D-Day because there would have been no resources siphoned off in the Pacific and it would have been all of it 100% to be devoted to the European theater. Now again, if we're adding more what is here, but let's say it happens in July of 1943 instead of June of 1944 and it has something approximating the success that it had at a later date. Where is the Red Army by July of 1943? I believe it's not yet into Poland. So if the war had ended essentially a year earlier in Europe, all of Central Europe would have looked very, very different than it turned out. And then the United States, the British, and the Russians at that point could have turned to Japan and said, all right, we're, we're finished in Europe, and now we've got uh, umpteen hundred divisions uh, mobilized, and we're ready to take you on, and you're going to behave yourself. So that, that conflict may never have happened. And the European war would have ended on uh, a different territorial basis and different political basis. But we're, we're, we're adding a lot of assumptions along the way. We start to get to the point where it's irresponsible. Yes. The, the embedded in your question, I guess, Anne, is another point of longstanding historical uh, inquiry. And no one, to my knowledge, has satisfactorily answered this question. By the terms of the German-Japanese treaty, Germany was not obligated declare war on the United States because the, the treaty that was struck between Japan and Germany called for the other power to come to first power side in the case it had been invaded. Japan had not been invaded. It, it was the invader. So legally, not, to, not that that meant anything to Adolf Hitler anyway, but legally he was not obligated to declare war on the United States. But he does. I think it's on December 11th. I believe it's four days after the war. And it's a mystery to a lot of people why he did that. Had he not done it, 
that he just held his breath, held his, stayed his hand, and not declared war in the United States. He might have created a political situation in the United States where the scenario that Churchill momentarily feared would become more plausible, that the, the American public opinion would have demanded such a large commitment uh, in retaliation against the Japanese that the resources available in the European theater would have been less. So I think Hitler, uh, some impulse or whatever, we don't really know, gave up a possible uh, considerable strategic advantage by declaring war in December. Um, well, thank you very much for a very uh, highly entertaining lecture. And uh, it's meant, I mean, you'll be talking about American history, America's role uh, in the world after 1945, and it's uh, presented uh, uh, by the Institute of American History. But uh, you, you quote Churchill as saying that uh, you know America stands on the summit of world power and the implication is that after 1945 the Pax Americana more or less determines world history and the 45 is there for this sort of pivot. It might look rather different though surely if you were looking at it say from Stalin's point of view uh, he might look at it and say well no, we were the main contributors to the war effort against Hitler we won the war, uh, we defeated fascism, uh, we've come out of it as a great uh, communist power, we've taken over Eastern Europe and then you get to 4950 with uh, Stalin exploding an atom bomb, the Chinese, uh, the Maoist revolution in China, communism taking over the East, uh, the defeat of the stalemate of America in Korea, uh, later on the defeat of America in Vietnam, America unable to uh, free Cuba or whatever from communism. And from a communist or a different perspective, you could say that maybe 4950 is a pivot of history. You get NATO being transformed into proper military alliance. The Americans being forced to go overseas. The rearmament in Germany. Uh, alliances all over the world against uh, the Soviet Union. A, a real, very radical uh, change in the American geopolitical situation. And from the communist point of view, it may look as if you know history is going their their way. And in China's still today doing very well, of course. Uh, and from this rather wider perspective, non-American perspective, you might say, well, America may not have been at the summit in 45, hasn't controlled world events since, and perhaps 45 uh, shouldn't be the key date, it might be 49.50. Isn't this a rather American-centric view of events? Well, mind you, uh, when I quoted Churchill's America stands, United States stand at this moment of the sum of the world, I, I thought I was pretty scrupulous about not saying whether that was for better or worse. And, and, you're, and you're certainly suggesting a, a possible longer-term historical perspective that may one day become the conventional wisdom. Uh, I, I think we haven't had enough history yet uh, to really know. What's the, what's the other, who was it, Jean Enlai was asked something about, what's the famous question? What, what do you think of the French Revolution? It's too early to tell. So it may be too early to tell whether the scenario you've described is actually going to be the, the accurate one. It may be that the United States was lured into um, uh, and duped into thinking that it stood at the summit of the world and thereby overcommitted itself and really got behind the curve of history. But again, if you, if you go back to the simpler question, um, the one that's more easily, more easily deal with in the short run, you ask the very simple question, who won World War II? And it depends, I, mean, I hate to sound like Bill Clinton 
niggling about what the meaning of is is, but <laughs> it depends what you mean by what. If you ask uh, what country paid the greatest price in blood and treasure to achieve the final victory, unambiguously the answer is you say is the Soviet Union. But if you say what country exited the war most advantaged, or what country exited the war in better shape economically and otherwise than it entered the war, there's only one answer to that question, it's the United States. Now, what the United States did with that momentary advantage is another matter, and we, we don't have enough history yet to, to know. Uh, but And this is exactly why Stalin, I think, was so resentful, not only during the war but after, because he, he without, not without reason, believed that you know, the Soviet Union had paid the price and deserved richer fruits of victory. It's a question at the top there. Oh, uh, I, this one first. To follow uh, the line of the discourse, uh, perhaps it's allowed a brief anecdote which is perhaps comparable with that pilot who flew his fleet or was uh, chief pilot, uh, chief lead pilot, uh, towards um, Japan and saw this little balloon uh, flying. So in this, like a little uh, butterfly doing the famous uh, storm kind of thing, um, uh, I want to mention that when I was Ten, I saw a huge fleet over the whole sky flying over me and I was in the middle of a quite substantial uh, German army uh, column with tanks and everything but it was American bombers and they flew over it without it they must have seen it anyhow they went to Gleiwitz and bombed the, the, the it must have been 44 now um, a year later then the next little anecdote uh, the first American jeep with soldier coming in having his foot on the side seat and stardust playing out of his radio the war was still on I looked at the jeep and I knew this technology was you know, as a 10, 11 year old boy you had taken great interest in German uh, arms all, all over I knew that had beaten us because I'm German and but what struck me most was that Stardust music I take that now basically as a contribution of Africa so to speak in a, in a long long winded historical sense which perhaps has done more to winning the war than the 90th division, which in the, uh, in the end turned out after the 215 decision, whatever way it got. But now I want to make the last rather crucial little anecdote, and that was where, when Pete Dominici, the previous chair of the budget committee in the Senate, uh, was uh, asked to the White House... Um, on the question of the port uh, decision, should you allow the, the, the Arabs to buy the ports they or not? Ports. Yeah. And of course it was McCain who pushed for united stand of the Senate against um, the attempts to be isolationist and actually you know, do Bush's policy of selling the, the stuff, selling the ports, free trade. So McCain made the motion and it was Everybody thought they were going to lose their Senate seats as a result. And Pete Domnici stands up. Ah, they had a, actually a secret meeting without Cheney. 
And during the meeting, the door opened and Cheney entered the room and everybody looked around. Uh, it is reported, uh, so I just report what I read. Uh, that Cheney, how, how on earth did he know that that meeting took place? It was a little internal, uh, only 12 uh, chief senators in. And anyhow, so Pete Dominici stands up and says, look, following McCain, we have to be united. We have to all vote for Bush, even if we lose our seats or if we are against it. Because otherwise, we are like a flock of quail, and we are all going to be shot. Now, I consider this anecdote a very crucial, kind of like the, the beginning and the end, because the pilot, with other words, went to, uh, into the plane, dropped the atom bomb, and that was without what he saw, the balloon coming in the first place, and then comes, he says, actually, atom bomb, he looks down, his atom bomb, the beginning and the end of that thing. I think this little anecdote perhaps says us a huge amount about certain weaknesses uh, within the American military setup um, and uh, its relations to civilian concerns. Well, uh, I, I, I'm not sure about the, the military, the, the, what, what the anecdote reveals about weaknesses in the military organization, but I will offer the following thought that just that you make me think. Um, the United States has had, since 1973, an all-volunteer army. Uh, it's not a small army, but it's not that big either. It's about uh, 1.4 million active duty personnel. So relative to population, 300 million person population, that's a, it's a relatively small claim that the military makes on the human resources of the society. And even with the... Uh, the budget, if you add the supplemental appropriations for the Iran and Iraq, uh, the, the Iraq and uh, Afghan wars, uh, the Pentagon budget is something in the neighborhood of maybe 550 to 600 billion, but in a 13 trillion dollar economy, that's four and a half or five percent of GDP. So it's not a very markedly large claim on the society's economic resources either. So what does that what does that structural situation do politically? I think what it does is it creates what you might call a moral hazard for the political leadership to resort to the instrument of arms without having to pay much of a political price. Because uh, the United States today essentially can wage war without the civil, civilian society breaking a sweat. Uh, not very many of uh, America's sons and daughters have to actually get the harm's way, and the civilian economy is not significantly affected by even the scale of military conflict in which we're now engaged. This is partly enabled by something uh, called the RMA, the Revolution of Military Affairs, which is mostly a computer-driven uh, smart weapon uh, development that dates essentially from the 1980s and the application of very large-scale integration technologies to weapon systems. And it means that the average civil soldier, sailor, or airman today has umpteen times the firepower and killing power of the average soldier, sailor, or airman just one generation ago. So it, it, it lowers the threshold for where the United States can actually wage war. I think that's the single most important structural feature of American civil-military relations today. Um, so that's, that's, that's the thought that you inspired. Okay, I think we have time for just a single final question. And the gentleman at the back there. Um, 
Do you think that we will reevaluate the hist uh, history of World War II based on the rise of India and China and Southeast Asia? Because I note in your analysis and some of the questions from that side of the audience that it seems to be almost blind to really that, that happening. You know, what the, the part of China, the part of the Southeast Asian countries, India, the Commonwealth and that part of the country of the world. I mean, will that maybe make us think one day that World War II started in 1937 or 31, as you said? No, I think that, that, that's another large subject, and we could have another whole evening's discussion about it. But I think you're absolutely right that, that among the consequences of World War II is the fairly rapid decolonization of Asia. Um, in fact, I, I've on other occasions tried to make the argument that Japan won the war in 1942 and fully expelled all the European colonial powers from uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Burma, Dutch East Indies, on and on and on, and that that uh, victory was only temporarily reversed for a few years after 1945, and that we now live in a world that was actually recognizable as early as 1942. When Asian states are uh, independent, or at least Asian, the European powers are out of Asia. So the Hong Kong and Macau uh, handovers in the last few years are really just the last vestige of this great historic pivot uh, that was World War II. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely right in that particular, from that particular perspective, this is a major, major consequence of the war. Okay, well, I think uh, there, were, there, were several, there were several hands I could go to, but I think we've nearly reached 8 o'clock, so it would be sensible to, to, to call matters to, to, to a close here. Um, I would like to, uh, and I think all of us would join in thanking you for an extraordinarily wide-ranging talk, both chronologically, geographically, and uh, in terms of uh, speculative counterfactuals. So it's been great fun. Thank you.